Good afternoon and welcome to this webinar, uh, which has been uh, prepared in order to launch the booklet that was produced as a consequence of the May 2021 uh, Balfour Project Conference on the Rule of Law in Israel-Palestine. I'm Dominic Grieve, uh, and I participated and chaired the first session of that conference. And this afternoon, it's my privilege and pleasure uh, to introduce uh, two other speakers and to say a few words of my own about the booklet that we have produced and about some of the underlying issues. At the root of the Balfour Project is the view uh, by many by those of us in this country and the people who are associated with the project of Britain's key role and its historic role and its role today in the creation of uh, Israel and as a consequence of the Palestinian uh, issue that has arisen from it. We are believers uh, in the right of the Israeli state uh, to exist and indeed in wishing to have the friendliest possible relations with Israel that has always shown itself in many aspects to be a very good friend of the United Kingdom. And indeed, the claim to embody democratic principles and embrace the rule of law. But the hard truth is that in the context of both Palestinian territories in the West Bank and also in Gaza, Israel is falling far short of its international legal obligations and indeed is acting in ways which undermine its own status as a rule of law state. No one who has traveled to the West Bank can fail to see the extent to which Israel's security needs, as it would call it, to justify its actions, are in fact carving the territory occupied legally and legitimately by Palestinian people up creating a series of enclaves and, as a consequence, making the prospect of the creation of a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestine question impossible. And that should be of concern to all of us, all of us who wish to see the rule of law succeed in Israel as much as within the West Bank and Gaza. Because unless this is addressed, the reality is that Israel is heading towards becoming an apartheid state controlling the entirety of the old Palestinian mandate territory, and yet according to many of the people living within it, completely different sets of rights from those that are enjoyed by Israeli citizens in Israel itself. And indeed the issue is even more complex than that, because depending where you may be, the rights that you're likely to enjoy will differ from one place to another. That then was what our conference set out to look at. And we were immensely fortunate in having a wide range of speakers, starting with Baroness Hale, uh, who uh, explained why the rule of law matters, uh, looking at recent developments in Israel and Palestine and uh, from the point of view of Philippe Sands QC, uh, and uh, looking also at what was actually happening on the ground in the second day of the conference, with contributions about the settlement projects, the reality of Palestinian children and Israeli military detention, what was happening in Gaza, and the issues of accountability, and ending with a discussion with leading political figures in the United Kingdom about whether we can 
help make international law prevail in Israel-Palestine, and whether there's a contribution that we can make, born of some of our own experiences, for example, in Northern Ireland, which might help uh, bring the two sides together and achieve a lasting settlement. Because as I commented in the course of it, and I think it was commented on by others, one of the problems is that as no one appears to be optimistic about any route ahead, it encourages both sclerosis and slide, with nothing happening to improve matters and a tendency incrementally for matters to get worse. Those then were, as I say, the issues that we wanted to look at. And I hope that the booklet, which I've had a chance of reading, but has only just gone up on the website that you will be able to access it, uh, makes a, a positive contribution to that discussion and will be a good read for those of you who are coming this afternoon. But I have no pretense of being an expert on this subject, fascinated as I've been by my visits to Israel and Palestine uh, over my time in government and shortly before when I was a member of parliament. But what we do have uh, this afternoon are uh, two uh, speakers, uh, both Haggit Ofran and uh, Nada Kiswanson, who are going to uh, make contributions of their own, after which we can have a conversation and discussion, bringing all of you who have joined us this afternoon in, so that the Balfour Project, which we have tried to bring about and steer forward at the moment, can take on some more momentum with your help. So thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. And without any more ado, I am going to pass over to Haggett, who will do her presentation to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm Haggett Ofran, I'm from um, Peace Now, I'm an Israeli, Jewish, active uh, many years uh, trying to fight the occupation and especially the um, settlements. And I would like to uh, try in 10 minutes uh, show an overview of current trends um, in settlements and uh, hope not to be too depressing, uh, I hope. Okay, um, usually when we talk about uh, settlement uh, activity, people tend to look at the numbers and want to know data, how many did we advance, etc. So I just give you an example. Uh, on October, the government uh, approved plans for almost 3,000 units in settlements and another 1,300 units, uh, which are tenders, which, which are the construction to, to go on. And this is um, like a, a normal um, number. Uh, quote unquote of, of um, construction and development in settlements. And as you can see in the map, it's all over the West Bank. It's not concentrated specifically in one place. And this means Israel is furthering its hold in the occupied territories. But I want us to remember that it's not only a question of numbers. There are some places where construction is more dramatic in terms of the human rights uh, of the people around it. For instance, if we look at uh, this picture is the very beginning of construction of 31 units in the heart of Hebron. The, the city of Hebron, the Palestinian city of Hebron 
a new settlement has been uh, built right now, and it has tremendous effect um, on, on the people living in, in Hebron. So it's not, when you look at settlements, it's not only about numbers. Um, another uh, important development, again, only from October, one of the uh, tenders, which means the beginning of construction, was in the settlement of Ariel, which is, a, according to Israel, it's a city, uh, 20 kilometers in, deep in the West Bank. And, and officially, it was supposed to be part of Ariel. But when we look at the location of it, it's here in Ariel uh, West, it's west of Ariel. And it's actually two kilometers drive from the settlement, it's outside of the fenced area. So you might say that it's in fact, it is a new settlement that they are now uh, starting to build in the West Bank uh, in 2021. And it, it is uh, totally uh, cutting the town of Salfit, which was supposed to be the town that uh, connects with all this, the northern uh, villages around it. Uh, and now it's really uh, had no potential of development. And that's another important uh, development. Uh, the most famous uh, plan that was um, promoted but then stopped uh, was uh, Atarot plan, the Kalandia plan. As you can see, we, I note, um, I put here three big and important plans that are considered more uh, traumatic or more lethal for the potential of establishment of a Palestinian state um, because it cuts the um, continuity of very dense populated Palestinian areas. We're talking about Atarot, north of Jerusalem, E1, east of Jerusalem, and Givat Amatos, south of Jerusalem. And these uh, three settlements are being promoted uh, even uh, in this new government that we have um, today. And I want to say uh, it's considered lethal uh, to a Palestinian state, meaning to a two-state solution, but it's also lethal for the very development of any Palestinian economy or development as a state or as a not a state. Another very important trend um, is the establishment of uh, farm outposts, illegal settlements. Of course, all settlements are illegal, but even according to the Israeli uh, laws, um, we have uh, many, uh, almost 50 of them that were established in the last four years, and it's all scattered all around. And when I'm saying it's uh, uh, farms, it looks like that. It's a very small, point with very few people. Sometimes it's a young couple and the three volunteers or something. They live in, in, a, in a, not a tent, they build uh, something more uh, serious, usually in a, an old truck, they start with it so that you cannot consider it as illegal construction, but soon after they will build uh, illegally other things and they will bring their sheep and um, go around uh, in the West Bank. And what they see themselves doing is 
they call it to protect the nation's land. The nation's land is land that they consider, or uh, the government of Israel considered state land, uh, that Israel, it's actually public land. And they see themselves as the protecting the lands by kicking out Palestinian presence from those lands. And they get uh, documents from one of the authorities that gives them a lot of land. This is like a, an example of, of a map of land that one settler got. It's almost 2000 uh, dunams here, or even a little more. Uh, it's South Hebron Hills in this case. Um, and um, this settler um, officially, or it's half officially has the, the rights to all these lands. So what he does every morning is to go out to the field and kick out the Palestinians and they do it in various ways. And it's not by accident that we see a rise in the settlers' um, violence because they are there to kick the Palestinians out. And sometimes they would do it politely and say, go away or call the, the army to do it. And sometimes they will do it more violently uh, friction is very high. And this is another very important trend to, to notice, the, the new settlements. Uh, another very dramatic change uh, uh, is the issue of roads. And many uh, strategic roads were promoted and built and are now under construction. And the roads are the key for the development of the settlements. Uh, if, if now, uh, for instance, south of Bethlehem, we have around uh, 60,000 settlers and they commute every day to Jerusalem. Um, it takes them one hour now because of the traffic jam. Uh, as soon, like in a couple of years, this upgrade of the main road will complete and it will take them 10 minutes. And if you have such a highway, uh, the construction will follow very close uh, immediately. And it will be like um, suburbs of Jerusalem. And that's what the government is trying to, to reach. And uh, this is very dramatic um, and it's ongoing. Um, another important thing uh, this is a picture of Palestinians from uh, Batan el Hawa in East Jerusalem. We have hundreds of Palestinians under threat of being evicted or displaced from their homes in Silwan. This picture is from Silwan. And of course, Sheikh Jarrah that you all heard of. And it's all done in the same mechanism, uh, utilizing a law, discriminatory law that uh, allows the right of return for Jewish properties in East Jerusalem, while we have another law that does not allow uh, the right of return of Palestinians to their properties in West Jerusalem and Israel. And based on that, we have um, eviction lawsuits, again, hundreds of, of Palestinians. And, and it's something that is, uh, we might get to a final ruling in the coming days, weeks, or months, we don't know exactly. Um, here is the Sheikh Jarrah uh, map with all the reds, where, uh, houses that are under threat of uh, eviction. 
um, etc. Now I want uh, to conclude with maybe um, the question of how to fight this. I think many years we've been, uh, I mean, many were talking about bringing the sides to talk and to negotiate a solution. And when we get the final status agreement, then all the problems will be solved because Israel will withdraw from most of the West Bank, there will be a Palestinian state. And this, this way we will solve the, the problem. And I totally support uh, this and I uh, try to, to bring this, uh, the two-state, uh, uh, I, I, I don't want to call it a solution, but the two-state reality. Um, but at the same time, uh, people lost all their hope that such a thing, such a, an agreement is possible. And I think mostly it's not that it's not possible inter physically, but it is not possible politically to imagine that there is the leadership to do it, etc. So I want to say that the approach that puts all the political uh, efforts uh, on bringing the sides to talk, the, which was under the Obama administration very strong, um, is not relevant when you don't have any uh, will or wish uh, to, to get it, uh, to, to negotiate. Um, if you have political capital, you should use it to restrain and to stop the settlements and not to bring the sides to talk. I think that's a conclusion that we can easily learn from previous uh, years. And also we have new factors now. Um, we have the investigation of the international um, court, which could be a game changer. We have um, um, the 2334 uh, UN um, Security Council resolution, uh, other tools that are focused on stopping settlements and uh, restraining it. And while I'm not suggesting to abandon the, the two states idea, I do think that we should focus on deoccupation rather than um, a political solution. Dominic, you are muted. I'm muted. Sorry, my, my fault. Thank you very much, Haggett, for that presentation of how the process of settlement has been proceeding and carving and parceling up the West Bank. Uh, Nada, can I ask you to speak next? Yes. Uh, can you hear me? We can. Yes. Oh, perfect. All right. So thank you so much for inviting me again to uh, participate in an event with the Balfour Project and today's launch of its booklet uh, on the Rule of Law Conference. I dedicated my presentation last time to the topic of accountability, and I want to revisit that subject here today. My area of expertise is international criminal law. And I like to believe that nobody would argue with the premise that persons that commit outrageous criminal acts should be punished. 
citizens of law-abiding countries take for granted that when a crime is committed, they can turn to the police, file a complaint, participate in the investigation and have their day in court. We know far too well that this is not the case for Palestinians living under Israeli control and occupation. I therefore pressed during my first presentation on the need for external intervention by, for example, the International Criminal Court. But accountability is really much more than that. It's about preventing wrongdoing. It's about creating a culture of responsibility and respect between human beings. It's about ensuring humane governance and the rule of law. And there will be no accountability when persons are being treated unequally and when one racial group is considered divine and beyond reproach. There is no accountability. I think it's fair to say today after half a century of occupation, when it comes to Israel's occupation of Palestine and its treatment of Palestinians, and nothing really should be allowed to justify unjust conduct. Now, because accountability poses a threat to those that profit from lawlessness and subjugation, human rights defenders and civil society organizations in Israel and Palestine have faced orchestrated opposition and suppression in Israel and Palestine for decades. Since the rule of law conference in October of this year, this suppression culminated in a decision by Israel to designate six Palestinian human rights organizations, including Al-Haq and Adamir, as unlawful organizations. This designation occurred under anti-terrorism legislation. And effectively what this could mean is that staff could be prosecuted and imprisoned, the assets of the organizations could be seized, and the organizations could ultimately be forced to shut down. Shortly after this designation, frontline defenders Citizen Lab and Amnesty International's Security Lab confirmed that the spyware Pegasus was present on the phones of six Palestinian human rights defenders. Three of these uh, human rights defenders work at the six organizations that have been designated as unlawful. Now, Pegasus is a product of the Israeli NSO group. And since then, there's been quite a lot of coverage around the NSO group and the use of its spyware against human rights defenders around the globe, but also of politicians and royalty. Apple very recently sued the NSO group to, and I quote, hold it accountable for cyber surveillance of its products. By attempting to instill fear in the human rights community and silence those that dare speak up against the occupation, Israel is betraying its own self-promoted image of a civilized democratic country, but it's also striking at the very heart of accountability because it is trying to silence those that try to achieve it. 
Now, the Balfour Project recognizes the historic role and involvement of Britain in Palestine. But what I found powerful about the rule of law conference was its focus on principle above all, was to look at the occupation from the lens of the law. It was to place it within the appropriate international legal framework. I congratulate the Balfour Project on concluding its conference, uh, which I had the pleasure of, of speaking at, as well as its uh, booklet uh, that is uh, launched today. Thank you very much for, for inviting me uh, to speak it again. Um, thank, thank you very much, Nada. Um, and thank you to all our panelists. Um, my name is John McHugo. I'm a trustee of the Balfour Project, and I was one of the trustees who were involved in organizing these conferences. And we're very grateful to our three speakers today, uh, Dominic Grieve, uh, Hagit Ofran, and Nada Kiswanson for um, helping us to launch this document. The souvenir brochure of the conference went live at three o'clock this afternoon online. So you can already download it if you would like to. Um, we have the, our speakers have kindly agreed to stay for a little longer in case you have any questions. And I have got several that I would like to um, uh, pass on from the chat box that has come in while they've been speaking. Um, but before I do that, maybe I could make a couple of comments myself. Um, you know about the Balfour Project mission statement. It is there on our website um, if you want to remind yourself of it. This conference also ended with a concluding statement that appropriately enough is printed right at the beginning of the printed version. If you would like a printed version or to distribute some, uh, please get in touch with Diana Safier, who will be happy to send them to you. Because they cost us a little bit of money, um, it would be helpful if you could make a little donation. And if I can plead on behalf of a charity that is trying to do some very good and very necessary work, um, it would be helpful if you could make a small donation, perhaps five pounds or something like that, or, or whatever you feel you can afford. Um, we, we certainly don't want to limit you to five pounds. Um, uh, that would not be, that is not our intention. But I think the main problem that has happened over the decades, because this is a, an issue that goes back many decades now and has been a major destabilizing factor in the world since um, since really about the time of the beginning of the Cold War, uh, if not before. Um, until there is peace with justice between the Israelis and the Palestinians, uh, there, there is not just going to be no warm peace between Israel and its neighbors, but also it is a major destabilizing factor further afield. And there has been remarkably little focus on the importance of the rule of law. And that is why we in the Balfour Project thought it was so important to uh, launch this conference back in May 
and to publish its proceedings so that people can see that this is not the complicated issue it is sometimes portrayed as. I'm not denying that there are many complicated things about it, but many of the linguistic issues are pretty clear. Uh, so not, I said the linguistic issues, I mean the legal issues. Many of the legal issues are pretty clear. Um, take, for instance, the question of the status of the occupied territories that were occupied by Israel in 1967. Israel is not able to annex those territories by any unilateral act as far as international law is concerned. That is crystal clear. It is also crystal clear that the people of the occupied Palestinian territory have the right to self-determination. And that includes, of course, the, the option to set up their own state on that land if they wish to do so, and they do wish to do so. And it also means the territorial integrity of that land. As I said, no unilateral action by Israel can annex it. And that means, as has already been pointed out, that the settlements are illegal because it is a breach of the Fourth Geneva Convention and an imputive war crime to transfer parts of your civilian population into territory you have occupied in conflict, in armed conflict. Well, I'll pause there and let's start looking at some of the questions that have come in from, uh, from you. And I'm going to begin with one that I'll, I'll I mean, uh, Dominic, Hagit and uh, Nada, please all three of you feel, uh, please uh, feel free to uh, comment on any of them. But I'll begin with this one from Ronald Mendel. Um, how would you respond to Israel's justifications for not recognizing its obligation under international law? I'm thinking of statements like the occupied territories are disputed and the settlements are only built for security uh, reasons. Um, Hagit, as settlements are mentioned specifically, perhaps would you like to uh, say something about that? What about the self-defense ar argument? Uh, I think uh, Israel, like every country, has the right to defend itself, but it has nothing to do with the right to control millions of, of people under occupation. Uh, this, uh, I think also it's an illusion that it is contributing to our uh, security. The threats for Israel uh, are for many years not the, the territorial threats. Uh, we have uh, rockets that can hit us from very far. So we don't need more territory in order to protect ourselves. And um, the settlements themselves are uh, definitely not a security asset, but it's a burden that our military needs to defend with all the roads that lead to it and uh, scattered all around the West Bank. The army, the Israeli army has a lot of work to do only to make sure that the civilians uh, are not hurt there. Um, so this excuse is just an excuse and it uh, cannot be accepted. Um, Dominic or Nada, would either of you like to add anything? 
I, I'm happy to add this. Uh, Israel's position on this is really untenable. Um, firstly, it has supported the principle of a two-state solution. And the cumulative impact of what it is doing in the West Bank is to make a two-state solution impossible because you cannot create a state which is carved up by islands of settlements, making it impossible to create a cohesive and economically and politically viable unit. It may have an argument that the ceasefire line, uh, as it took place in, in uh, the 1948, that that uh, was not considered necessarily to be immutable. But on the other hand, it accepted the existence of that ceasefire line. And the ceasefire line is there as part of the UN's uh, attempts at reaching a solution to it. So I don't find that uh, a viable uh, argument either. It clearly uh, doesn't have any traction in international law at all. Um, Israel, and this is the interesting thing, I'm conscious one or two people have been asking if I digress a little bit, you know, is Israel creating an apartheid state? Well, yes, it is. Whether it is an apartheid state now, um, as I think in a funny way, neither here nor there. The, the, the impact of what it's doing and its necessary outcome is going to be create a single political unit under Israeli domination with people having vastly different rights. It's not the only place on earth to do it. We can see the Chinese doing it in Central Asia to some of their own citizens. So, um, but it is unusual. And I think this is the point that we always have to keep in mind. Israel says it's a rule of law state. And indeed it has many of the trappings of a rule of law state. And we should see that as an advantage for our argument. It does have a Supreme Court and an independent judiciary. And yet, despite those things, it is behaving in ways that the international community sees as being profoundly unsatisfactory. But we should also recognize it does give us an opportunity for a dialogue with the Israelis that perhaps we don't have with some tyrants. Thank you. Nata, would you like to add anything to that? Yes, I, I would. Just a, a brief comment. In that question, there is a presumption or a an acknowledgement that settlements are being constructed for security reasons, that's no longer the case. If Israel ever did argue that, it is no longer part of the general discourse or the, or the uh, justification that's used for settlements today. Um, today, what we're having is hundreds and thousands of dunams of Palestinian lands being uh, taken unlawfully for the construction of civilian settlements. Um, and for the use of uh, normal, quote unquote, citizens of Israel. Um, and uh, very much the idea that, under, that, that underlies that is uh, a historic land of Israel that goes far deep into the West Bank and actually uh, includes the entire West Bank. So this is not about security. And even Israel has has stopped, you know, if we're looking at statements from politicians, they they no longer shy about. They say that that the West Bank is theirs and they want to settle in it. And that's the reason for why they're there. It's an ideological uh, motivated project. There have been quite a few um, questions focused on 
BDS and British government policy and what can be done about it. Uh, Fahid Abu Arpil, who um, uh, has asked a couple of questions. Why should Israel change their policy if the UK and USA continue to support Israel with no questions asked? Uh, there have been many other questions and statements that are variants of that, if you like. Um, he also says, will the Palestinian leadership and people forget about a Palestinian state and begin to ask for equal recognition with Israelis? Um, any comments on either of those? Perhaps the, the role of the, they should be taken a bit separately. Um, the role of the British government and boycott, divestment and sanctions. Um, Dominic, do you think there's any realistic chance of British government policy moving in those directions? I mean, I noticed that the Liberal Democrat conference, uh, and I know them, they're by far the, 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 the smallest of the um, three parties represented from all over the UK in the, in the, in the House of Commons, but at their conference, they said that um, uh, there should be action concerning trade with settlements. And that's very much the um, Balfour Project position. I think also the SNP and the Labour Party have moved in that direction too. But can you see anything about British government policy on that shifting? I doubt at the moment that British government policy will shift. Um, Britain has been consistent in one sense in uh, denouncing uh, the creation of settlements, in emphasizing the need for a two-state solution, in refusing to recognize any Israeli legitimacy to occupy any part of the West Bank or Gaza and indeed East Jerusalem, uh, consistent in refusing to move uh, its embassy to Jerusalem uh, as a sign, uh, as the Americans have done, that's somehow of approving of that. Uh, but beyond that, the UK government, successive UK governments, have taken the view that it, it is a problem that Israel needs to resolve, that they're happy to use offer their good offices for doing it, but that they don't believe that trying to pressurise the Israelis, either unilaterally or when we were members of the EU through the EU, is likely to be productive. Now, one can criticise that. You can certainly make an argument that accepting... Uh, economic produce from the settlements, uh, you could legitimately argue uh, for uh, saying it, we shouldn't be doing. And I can well understand why some have advocated that. Um, the UK government's attitude has been that they don't think it's going to help. And it is true, in my judgment, that ultimately the only country that can actually exercise significant leverage over Israel is the United States of America. And so if the United States itself is not willing to budge on the subject and is not willing to apply that pressure, it's very unlikely that uh, the United Kingdom on its own would be able to make any significant impact. So that's the best answer I can give you. It's possible that a future Labour government might take a, a stronger view, and certainly they would be fully justified in doing it if they wish to. That there is, I think, all the justification in international law for doing it, but whether that actually is going to produce a benefit is a legitimate question. And as I say, in the absence of the US's involvement, it's difficult to see how it would necessarily have an impact. Indeed, as far as the international law position, of course, is the question of differentiation between Israel itself 
and the um, settlements in the occupied territory was mentioned in Security Council Resolution 2334, which America allowed to go through the Security Council in the dying days of the Obama administration. And so I think that must, there can be little doubt that that reflects what is what was already customary international law. Um, Hagit or Nata, would you like to say anything on Hagit, would you like to say anything? I would refer people to Nada's uh, um, talk on the conference. And uh, the question of accountability is something uh, very important. Uh, and of course, especially when we're so frustrated that we cannot make any change for so many years, we want to see something that uh, Israel will start to pay for this policy. Um, but then there should be the question, what is the best way to make Israelis or make Israel pay, um, etc. But for sure, the world, I, I think that the world should be much more clear about uh, opposing this policy and uh, um, the, the differentiation should be for granted and not the not the change that you should make it's it's uh, actually it's the legal um you don't need to change any law uh, to say that uh, the west bank is not part of israel and that uh, our agreements with with israel does not apply on, on settlements Indeed. Um, I also understand, we've got a question here from um, someone about the Israeli Supreme Court, um, uh, Matthew Guthill. Um, what is the international standing of the Israeli Supreme Court, given that it appears to be unable or unwilling to uphold international law regarding the occupation? Um, I was going to put that one to Hagit, if I may. But I do recall that in the proceedings of the conference, um, Michael Svard, your Israeli colleague, said that the um, Israeli Supreme Court has decided that the question of the settlements is a political one and therefore not justiciable, and it has therefore kept out of issues concerning the legality of the settlements or otherwise. Um, would you agree with that? Is there anything you would like to add? or? Nader, afterwards, if there's anything you would like to add to, please do go ahead, but Hagit first. I just, I wanted to, to, to say, and I keep reminding myself this, that the Supreme Court and the Court of Israel will not end the occupation. Uh, unfortunately for us, but it's really not, nothing that they can really do. I mean, um, they can, um, and I'm not justifying them for, for allowing the occupation. I'm just saying that it's really a political matter in the, um, that um, I would expect them to limit the Israeli policies much more, but it won't, it won't happen. I mean, the court will not end the occupation. We need to bring the politicians to stop it. 
Of course, in this country, not so very long ago, we had a case before the Supreme Court when the government tried to prorogue Parliament and the Supreme Court, which had been very reluctant to be involved in politics, uh, found itself forced to do so. I, I'm sure unwillingly, but it nevertheless, when it had to, it took the chance before it and, it, and it did give a clear and decisive and very well-reasoned ruling. Um, you don't see any possibility of something like that happening in the case of uh, the Israeli occupation? Not the occupation as itself. Uh, for instance, we went to court on um, settlements that were built on private Palestinian land. And the court was very clear that you cannot build on private Palestinian land. But all the other settlements uh, remain. And there were even you know, a few settlements that were evicted after a ruling of the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court in Israel was attacked strongly by the right wing and by the politicians that uh, undermined it uh, dramatically in recent years. Um, however, um, Israel will come up with new legal ideas of how to say that uh, this uh, crime is legal. And, um, and again, I'm not saying quit the legal approach. I'm just saying that uh, me as an Israeli, I cannot expect the Supreme Court to end such uh, dramatic um, 54 year policy of the, all governments of Israel. It's just impossible to imagine. Um, Nata, do you want to add anything to that? I, I assume you agree. Well, yes, I absolutely, I agree. Um, you know, I think when we when we speak about domestic mechanisms, uh, including the Israeli Supreme Court, what we have to remember is that the Israeli Supreme Court is part of the state of Israel. It does not operate in a vacuum. And I think it would be very naive to believe that it is wholly detached from what is happening in Israel and what is coming out of the executive branch. What we can see throughout the decades of the occupation and the countless of petitions that have been filed before the Supreme Court is that the Supreme Court is extremely reluctant to interject and actually address and correct Israeli actions that we would otherwise consider to be quite uh, straightforward in their illegality. You know, whether they, they violate um, the prohibition against settler transfer or the transfer of the protected Palestinian population, home de demolitions, uh, the, annex the presence of the annexation wall and occupied territory, the Supreme Court has not been willing to actually check Israel. And so Israel's been left to do as it pleases. And so it would be um, odd to say the least for the Supreme Court to come out after 54 years of setting a very strong uh, jurisprudence as to not, uh, uh, not correcting Israel to suddenly then say everything that you've been doing for 54 years is wrong and we were wrong in all of our decisions over those years. Um, that just simply won't be the case. 
I've got a question here from a member of parliament, uh, Mr. Andy Slaughter. And I, I think it's primarily um, addressed to you, Dominic. I'll read it out. How can we get more politicians from the right and center right to engage on this issue? These should not be partisan issues, but whereas left, center, nationalist and green parties are engaged in the UK and in many other European countries, it is difficult to find allies on the right. Now I can think of other members of the Conservative Party, such as David Jones, um, uh, who have uh, very, very good um, uh, approaches to this issue, but could you um, give us any thoughts on that? I think there are actually a lot of uh, conservative uh, MPs who are deeply concerned about uh, what's happening in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, are quite critical of the current government's inertia on the so and indeed the previous in fairness to the current government whatever other criticisms I, I may have of it it is simply continuing a policy of the previous conservative government throughout David Cameron's period uh, when he was prime minister uh, which was that the security considerations and the importance of our partnership with Israel in the wider Middle East uh, and the fact that Israel was a friendly country towards us, militated effectively against doing more than we were doing in both marking our disapproval of what was happening in the West Bank, but effectively doing nothing much about it. But there are such MPs on the Conservative benches, and some of them are still there. Um, but because this seems to have become a very settled policy view within the Conservative Party over the last 30 years, perhaps even longer. There's a feeling that there's that that's it. Um, and so whilst they may personally uh, have some contact with the Balfour project indeed uh, 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 and other projects indicating their concern and they're quite well networked into the wider Middle East in wanting to try and find a solution and a moderate peaceful solution to this, this uh, uh, conflict and the current situation they're sort of rather stymied from taking things any further. It would need, I think, a change in leadership view about this, and that doesn't necessarily mean a change from the Prime Minister, just a change in leadership view to bring about a shift. And even the Labour Party, although I know you've had perhaps clearer debates about this, uh, when it's come to the crunch and the Labour government's been in office, it has tended to act in exactly the same way. I think that's true. I mean, it's very interesting to see the different remarks by Boris Johnson. I think when he was foreign secretary, he said that you either have a two state solution or end up with some kind of apartheid. And more recently, he wrote a letter, I think, to the Conservative Friends of Israel, in which he talked about um, how Britain um, did not think the ICC should um, be involved in uh, cases concerning uh, what, what is happening in the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, I'm in a very strong contrast there. Um, would Hagit or Nava, have you anything to add on that? As you, It's really a question, I suppose, for people in the UK, but if you've got any thoughts, please, please do add them. No, thank you. Um, and I suppose this brings us 
or, or what I just said a second ago, may bring us naturally to the whole two-state, one-state uh, issue. Um, I mean, the way I see it is that the, the legal rights that the Balfour Project talks about, the legal rights that are set out in this brochure, that set out the rights of both parties, they make it clear, for instance, that Israel is a sovereign state and a member of the UN. They also make it clear that the Palestinians have the right of self-determination, and that means they have the right to their land, and they have the right to take jurisdiction um, through the establishment of their own state over all the settlements that have been built. But maybe it is necessary for us to go through the two-state solution um, and then see what happens. Because if the two parties were to agree to form a single state, they would be free to do so. But I, my understanding is always, has always been that neither Israelis nor Palestinians really want that. Now, there have been a number of questions in the chat box about the two-state solution rather than the one state. But personally, I don't see how we can do anything other than press for legal rights, which have been outlined, and also for the basic concept of equality of treatment for all people. Um, would any of you like to comment on that? Um, Dominic, you look as, or Haggits got beaten you to it. No? Let, let Haggit go first. Okay, thank you. Um, realistically, um, I don't see a possibility uh, that the Israelis or the Israeli Jews will agree to a one state where we have an equal number of Palestinians or even a, a majority of Palestinians and equal rights. Unfortunately, it's uh, much more realistic to believe that if Israel is forced to end the occupation, Israel will opt to uh, withdraw from the West Bank and allow a Palestinian state. That's in terms of tactically. But I think also that this argument, which I, I totally understand the people who are so frustrated about the two-state solution, it's not going to happen, it's so hard, etc. I think this uh, argument is very problematic because if ones uh, are saying, well, one state is the where, where we should go to, so the fight against occupation becomes a little harder, especially in terms of the settlements, because um, if Israel is anyway going to be all over and there is no withdrawal in, in the end game, then why should we dwell with another settlement here, another settlement there, uh, let them, stay. It's also giving up uh, or giving in to the settlers and saying, we cannot undo you. It's uh, giving them legitimation that I think they are very much uh, overestimated. And uh, we, uh, I, I truly believe that the majority of Israelis are so indifferent uh, so that they, uh, on the one hand, they allow everything uh, to happen uh, for 55, four years right now, but also they will allow the, uh, as soon as there is leadership to say we, we are withdrawing, the majority of Israelis will, will agree and will all say, 
I was always against occupation. Dominic. My personal view is that whilst one can understand the temptation of arguing, well, the two-state solution has failed, therefore we should look at ending the apartheid nature of, of the current occupation of the entire landmass of Palestine, um, it raises very much the problems that Haggett has, has raised. And uh, how that would actually work out in the medium to long term, I simply don't know. Um, in view of Israel's security concerns, uh, which are real, even if you can make an argument that they are in part self-inflicted, um, I think that the route towards a single state uh, with equal rights is likely to be uh, chaotic, uh, potentially actually could be quite bloody. Uh, and I'm not sure that it's a viable solution, although it may be the de facto outcome of current Israeli policy. My own view is that as there has been an acceptance of the possibility of a two-state solution, it is that which should be promoted. And if I had one thing I would push, and it was pushed in the conference, I would without doubt, if I uh, had an opportunity in government, which unfortunately I don't, so I'm out of it, of recognizing Palestine as a state uh, within uh, and as a ter territory, whatever the final settlement might be and adjustments of borders that might take place. I think that's the most compelling argument that we should be taking in future, accompanied by a continued reiteration that Israel has an obligation to respect international law and that it is clearly violating it. And that is actually a political issue. And coming back to the, the, the point about the Supreme Court of Israel, there are limits to which domestic Supreme Courts can enforce international law. So I think we just have to recognize that that's a political issue, but that's the shift I think we should be making whether at some later stage it should be accompanied by boycotting settlement produce, that would also be, in my view, legitimate. Uh, but I think that that is the better route forward than suddenly completely reversing years of policy and saying, right, we will take you at your word. Um, you are now in a, you're a single state, but you are not treating your own uh, citizens correctly. Because that's never been Israel's position. If Israel were annexing the entire West Bank and saying it was forming part of Israel, then that might be an argument that could be powerfully made. But I think in the absence of it, I would stick to the way international law has tried to treat this conflict. Thank you. Uh, Nada, would you like to add anything? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I don't adopt a one state or two state solution lens to the, to, to the occupation. Uh, but what I do think is, is important is that we recognize that Palestinians have a self, right to self-determination. And as part of that right, it should be up to Palestinians to determine how they would like to live and whether or not they would like to live as part of one state or, or two states. Now, obviously, one would never expect anyone to make any decision of such consequence uh, while uh, living under uh, coercion, while living under suppression and occupation. I think what Hagit said in the beginning about focusing the conversation uh, around deoccupation is essential. We, can, we need to first end the occupation and then have a conversation as to, okay, so what does the future look like? And Palestinians need to be uh, at the at, uh, in in the driver's seat, 
these decisions should not be made by Britain, by the US or by Israel. It is part and parcel of the right to self-determination and, and that's really uh, where the focus should be. Thank you very much. We're, we're now out of time, I'm afraid. Um, so I'd like to thank our panelists. Uh, before I do so, I think that I should just mention one thing that's cropped up in the chat box. This is from Omar Shama. And he says, if you remember, I said that there are, that, you know, there seem people say that both Israelis and Palestinians want their own state separate from the other. And, and he has said, I am a Palestinian and I and many in capital letters, other Palestinians support a one state in capital letters solution. Well, that I think brings us to the end. So I'd like to thank our uh, three participants. Um, they might, might like to say a few closing words. As we began with Dominic, we'll close with Dominic. So I suggest we go in the reverse order. So Nada, would you like to say any final words? And then I'll go to Hagit and then finally to Dominic. But thank you all from me very much for coming to listen to us today. Uh, do download the brochure do get written copies of it. Um, I always feel that very often if you read something um, on your tabloid or something, it's then far better to read it in printed form because you then get new insights into it. You always do. But anyway, I will now pass you over to Nada. Uh, I've nothing more to add in terms of substance, just to thank you again for uh, inviting me uh, to the conference, but also today for the launch of the booklet. And I wish you all the best uh, in your future endeavors uh, with the project. Thank you very much, Hagit. I also want to thank you and ask all of you uh, not to give up on us. And uh, things are frustrating, but uh, the, the occupation can end and it will end. And we need all of you to help us end it. Thank you very much. And Dominic, final word to you. We end where we began. We end indeed where we began. Uh, we, uh, my thanks to the Balfour Project for having involved me uh, in it for the conference and for, as I say, I think this excellent booklet that has been produced. My thanks to uh, those, to Nada and, and to Haggett for their participation this afternoon and to you, John, for all you've done with this and to the many people who've joined us this afternoon, and perhaps just to pick up that, that one point by Omar, uh, I'm a Palestinian and many other Palestinians support a one-state solution. I'd just like to emphasize the point I think that this project is about is recognizing that the Palestinians living in Palestine have a right to self-determination and sovereignty. How that is subsequently exercised is another matter for those in the West Bank and Gaza. But I think that this project and the point about it is that it is rooted in principles of law. You won't be surprised that many of us who have come into it are lawyers. And because Israel, for all its faults, is a country which says it subscribes to the rule of law, and indeed in some respects does so, but not unfortunately all when it comes to its international legal obligations, I think. There's a view amongst us that the law is actually quite a powerful tool for getting peaceful change. And that's what the project is dedicated to doing. 
And that's why I'm, I'm very grateful to it and to Vincent, uh, who set it up, really, for doing it in this fashion. And for all those of you who are lending your support to it at the moment. And if we can do some positive good as a consequence, then we are working in the right direction. Thank you all very much for joining us this afternoon. And thank you, John.